Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Reed Murano, as recommended by Sean Meehan, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about Reed Murano's debut feature, Meadowland. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, This may seem pretty obvious to you if you have been following this podcast for any amount of time and realize that I uh, do have a weekly schedule to kind of coincide with the beginning um, of the month with my guest and then the subsequent weeks being devoted to the review of the individual titles. And if you've looked at the calendar and I've also been um, listening to this episode and thinking to yourself, there's no way he's going to get through three films in January, you are correct. Um, Because of my schedule for, uh, you know, the earlier in the month and scheduling Sean to come on the podcast. Obviously, things have been pushed out a little bit, so the final episode of this month and this theme for, um, I think we're alone now, will be probably released in the first week of February, thus kind of uh, tweaking the February schedule as well, whether that means it's going to be more of a condensed one or whether it's going to bleed into March, I just haven't actually decided yet, Um, but just uh, keep in mind that if you are wondering about how that's going to play out, then yes, um, February, uh, or this theme will bleed a little bit into February, and then potentially the February theme will bleed a little bit into March, but that's that's the future. Let's focus on the present, and the present, of course, is reviewing uh, Meadowland, and um, a, a film that Sean, uh, me, and I differ a little bit on, uh, in our opinion of it, which is not to say that we are polar opposites of this, but I did, um, text him shortly after I finished it, um, letting him know what my thoughts were, and he responded with, um, a a tweet that I will certainly post on the Facebook page so that you are able to, um, look at it and reference it and perhaps follow and or harass him on Twitter, uh, as well. Um, but, uh, maybe if you're active on film Twitter, whether you're a participant or just kind of observant, you may have, um, uh, seen this, uh, meme or discussion point that was kind of going on around on Twitter where Twitter movies posted this thing of hit us with your most controversial movie opinion and it's got a, a gif of uh, uh, Saoirse Ronan from Lady Bird nodding her head and saying bingo. There's been a lot of stuff that's been coming out. I contributed to it as well. Mine was that um, David O. Russell has always been a Hollywood filmmaker which may not be that controversial but that's besides the point. And, uh, and his response to it and by his I mean Sean's response to it was Tight plotting does not a good script make. Emotion over logic, always. Um, and, and, and kind of summing up his thoughts on, on my text to him, which is basically saying that uh, um, he didn't have a, a problem with how this was a, a character-driven, emotional-driven film, and, and on the surface, I don't either. Um, and, I, and I can recognize that while in both film and in real life, um, emotion can override logic emotion can be a a more powerful motivator and driver of um forward momentum and character motivation than logic can be but at least when it comes to uh, a film context for me um 
a character which is kind of or, or a film which is driven strictly by emotion instead of logic or at least um when it comes to films which are character driven and emotional driven versus a a, a high concept or, or a a more structured narrative um, story, it's a little bit harder for me, and I, I want to preface this and, and emphasize that this is just for me, it makes the characters, I, I don't want to say a little bit harder to understand, but it, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult to kind of get um, emotional, not even emotionally invested. It, it, it sort of, without sort of the the spine of that story, of sort of knowing um, or, or get, kind of getting a general sense of when you're watching a film, kind of how the story is going to unfold, it, it makes it a little bit harder to, I don't want to say predict where the characters are going to end up, but then once you find out where, you know, where they've, where they've ended up and kind of um, reflected back on the journey that they've gone through, uh, having that story to kind of fall back on, for me, kind of fills in the gaps a little bit or, or sort of, um, makes the kind of the whole journey a little bit easier to understand. I don't know if that makes any sense. I wrote down a very vague note, and then I kind of assured myself that when it came time to the actual recording, I was going to make it more uh, make it make more sense. But now that I'm talking, I'm I'm actually realizing that I I don't know if if what I'm saying is very clear. Um, suffice to, suffice it to say that this is just me talking here, and not saying that this is a general uh, you know consensus thing. Character-driven stories are a little bit harder for me to follow. And I don't necessarily mean that in the sense of I have trouble understanding what's happening or I'm, you know, lost and confused and, and kind of, um, you know, phase out. It's more of um, if I'm... It, if I'm engaging with a film which is just kind of strictly driven by uh, emotion and a particularly strong emotion as this one does, if the emotion kind of becomes unpleasant or overriding, I, like I don't have anything else to kind of grab onto at, for shelter. I, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but basically uh, I, I suppose in order to, to, to really, um, um, elaborate on this, I kind of actually have to get into uh, my review uh, and my thoughts on the film. And, and I, I will start out by saying none of this is necessarily meant to be critical of the film or to come across as though I disliked it. I actually, I really liked a lot of Metal Land. And by a lot, I mean a lot of stuff that Reed Morano was doing. And also in terms of um, how much I was on board with the film, I was mostly on board with it until the last 10 or 15 minutes. And I'll, and I'll get into that. But um, it is a very emotional film. It's obviously very character-driven, and Murano does a really spectacular job immersing us as viewers in the grief and the pain of Sarah and Phil. Um, in fact, uh, my fiance was watching it with me for a little bit, and then, uh, you know, after just kind of a, a short time, she kind of had to excuse herself because she said, this seems like it's going to be pretty bleak. I don't really want to um, uh, engage with it too much further, and so I I being the masochist and also the one that uh, had, to, had to watch it for the podcast, I, I, I pressed on it, and it did turn out to be kind of a bleak experience, or at least what I interpreted it to be turned out to be a pretty bleak experience. But it, it, it does say something about Murano as a director to, to really laud her for the fact that she makes this film so... 
I don't want to say oppressive, but it, the, the mood that both of these protagonists are going through is so inescapable and it's saturated through every frame, every element of this film. Um, and recognizing that Murano did start out as a DP and she kind of brought certain things to uh, the directing of a feature film that, um, you know, that she would be, that as Sean and I talked about, you know, what, what sort of, not even tricks that she brings, but what, what is she, what tools or elements does she bring from her past to help tell this story, this visual, this visual story of, um, a story which is just people feeling things and kind of going through life trying to feel these things. And I really kind of noticed three main things that she was doing with the camera, that she was doing with her direction to kind of create this atmosphere of sort of this inescapable and saturating um, pain and, and suffering and grief. And one of the first things that I, I noticed was how um, in, in pretty much every shot, there's a few exceptions in some of the wide shots that she is, 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 uh, that she uses, but, um, in pretty much every, uh, most every shot that you're going to see in this film, especially when it comes to the conversations, um, she's utilizing a very shallow depth of field. And if, uh, you are, and not to sound condescending, but if you are kind of unfamiliar with some of the, the more technical jargon when it comes to filmmaking, it basically just sort of means, um, you know, you, you see this a lot in, in especially kind of conversations um, where there's a shot, reverse shot in a conversation where the person who is who is speaking is in focus. Um, but anything which is kind of um, in the background or behind them is, is out of focus. It's very hazy. Um, and even depending on how how shallow of a focus it is, even stuff which might be closer to the camera is out of focus as well. She has a, a very shallow depth of field and, and a very shallow focus in the sense of um, in pretty much every single shot, and especially when there's a person involved in the shot, especially when it's Sarah or Phil involved in the shot, they are in, per in perfect clear focus and everything else, especially whatever is behind them, um, is out of focus. And this is not unique to Reed Murano films, certainly, but what it does for me or what it signals for me um especially when i like i said when it when this is deployed whenever sarah and phil is on screen is that it draws your attention to these subjects it makes you kind of focus immediately on them your eye is drawn to them your eye is not drawn to anything which is going on in the background your eye is not drawn to anything which is going on to the sides or in front of them it's just drawn to them as the characters and it just makes that whatever they are experiencing, whatever they're doing, even the shot itself, it makes it very intimate and it makes it very immediate. You know, uh, nothing, there is nothing outside of them. All that you need to focus on because all that they are focusing on in this moment, in this shot, is them. Um, and when it comes to a story that she's telling, which is about these two people who are really going through some suffering, who can't see much outside of themselves because they are just kind of so focused on what they shared between them and also how the relationship is kind of crumbling, it makes sense that they can't see the larger world, whether that's figuratively or literally, because all that exists for them is this pain and this thing that they are sharing together. It's inescapable. They don't want to be feeling it, but that's all that there is for them as the, the days are kind of unfolding. The second thing that I, that I kind of noticed with how she was choosing to shoot things was a thing that Sean mentioned and how she is imitating a very naturalistic um, lighting. I mean, there's a little bit of, uh, or, you know, a little bit of handheld camera work in this. It's not very shaky cam. You know, you're not seeing Paul Greengrass here, but the 
environments that she shoots in, whether it's in the car, whether it's outside, whether it's inside the an apartment, um, it does kind of the lighting does sort of feel very much like she showed up to the set or she showed up to the location, just kind of set up a camera and started directing her actors, and you just kind of get that sense. Nothing about any of the lighting, any of the the design of it feels heightened or feels um uh overdone basically i mean we talked in the in the introductory episode this idea of um at the oscars you know best cinematography being most cinematography whether that's what they've done with the color whether that's what they've done with the movement whether that's what they've done with um you know camera angles or, or, or something, even, even CG creations. But basically, um, you know, if you're watching a movie, it's like, wow, this looks really unlike anything I've ever seen in my real life. You kind of get that sense of, you know, most cinematography, whereas with Metal Land and with what she's doing with it, it feels just kind of like you're there and not even so much in a voyeuristic sense, but just everything feels natural. The, the lighting conditions feel like it would feel if you were there driving that car with them, or if you were there sitting in their kitchen with them. Everything just sort of feels um, like it should be. And I say that not because it, it adds a, a verite quality to it or anything like that, but instead because it it doesn't really draw attention to itself, other than one scene kind of, or arguably two shots or scenes in the movie, which I'll, I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit, but um, I'm thinking especially when they're indoors. And think of the scene that we first kind of see Giovanni, uh, Giovanni, or, sorry, Giovanni Ribisi's character. I always get the V's and the B's mixed up with that one. Um, when we first see him and he's, and he's, he's kind of uh, having this, he's bloviating kind of to them about the way that, the way that human beings process things, uh, you know, is, is reading left to right, and because of that, how much information you might miss. But there's this conversation happening in the kitchen, and it's just kind of very plain. The lighting, which I don't mean in the sense of it, of it looks bad or it looks like um, sloppy, but it just the way that the light is streaming in the windows, the way that some of the characters are kind of in shadow and others aren't. It just looks real and when i say it looks real i mean it looks kind of banal like it just kind of looks like well yeah that's how the kitchen would look like that's how they would look like in that light from the kitchen and it, it you just get the sense once again with with the shallow focus with the shallow depth of field or the shallow focus i kind of said like it, it lends the sense of intimacy and immediacy and you kind of get the impression that there is nothing else aside from them in the scene by having this lighting setup or, or this lighting approach and especially in a scene like that where um it, it's banal the impression that i get is, is sort of that like nothing is special or bright anymore you know this is just life now and it's a life of, of grief and pain and it is something that they are having trouble moving past or working through it's not oppressive but it's just it's inescapable it just is it's just banal it's just this is life now that's the impression i get from the visual approach that she is taking with this and, and it kind of without being over dramatic without it being very blatant it just subtly creates once again this emotional feel of just like this is this is just it. There's there's nothing special anymore. And it, it 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 adds the extra element to it without, like I said, kind of drawing too much attention to itself. I was actually reminded of, there was a film 
It's, uh, there was a film that came out in 2014, just a year before Meadowland did, uh, called God's Pocket. It's the, as of right now, the only film that John Slattery from uh, Mad Men has directed. Um, and it takes place, I think, just outside of, of Pittsburgh or maybe in Pittsburgh. But the, the, the characters that are involved in the film are, are sort of these uh, lower middle class, kind of blue-collar, uh, blue kind of working class people who... Um, are also dealing with um, a tragedy and the fallout from that. And that's a, a movie, too, that has this uh, this kind of inescapable sense of, of not just grief and pain, but also just based on who these people are and what their jobs are and how they interact with each other, the, also the subtext in that film is just these people are not going to escape this neighborhood, this socioeconomic um, position this existence that they're in, they are not going to be escaping this anytime soon. This is just their life. Um, and that film was shot by uh, a DP named Lance Accord, who has done a lot of work with Spike Jones. He shot a lot of music videos for him. He's done, but he also did adaptation, Where the Wild Things Are. Um, so those are films that are, 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 are kind of have these fantastical elements to it, but also kind of have a an approach of reality or also just at least not drawing attention to themselves you kind of feel like you are there with these people and so I was very much uh, reminded of that film and just this this sense of sort of like this is just life we are not we are never leaving this um that's not to say God's Pocket is not an, an excellent or an exceptional film I I enjoyed it it's not anything worth uh worth necessarily going out of your way to seek out but if you are curious then I think uh you will be able to to see what I'm talking about there because especially there are just this is hard to express through text. And when I was writing a review for God's Pocket years ago, it was hard to express it <clears throat> in text. But there's just, you know, when you're, and especially this is kind of like if you were, if you grew up in a suburb, um, there's just sort of those days when it's like a, let's say a Saturday afternoon in like early spring or, you know, maybe early fall. And there's just kind of this sense of like, there's nothing to do. You're bored. There's nothing on TV, but you don't want to go outside. Uh, you don't really want to do anything. You just kind of get this, I guess, ennui, or, or there's just this feeling of kind of like, what, what am I doing? That's kind of how I felt watching certain scenes in God's Pocket, and certainly watching certain scenes here, which is kind of like you're you're looking at the sun changing position through you know uh, light streaming through the wall, and just kind of thinking like, I don't want to. I don't want to do anything, and I also don't want, I don't want to feel like I want to do anything either. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's just kind of what, what I was thinking. Hopefully this is um, ringing true with someone um, out there. But And then the, the third thing that I, uh, that I was noticing uh, with this film, which kind of helped um, immerse me even more in this emotion, is once again the thing that Sean and I talked about, this idea of how Murata lingers on people. Um, and just really sits with them in their emotions. Now, of course, there is cross-cutting um, and, you know, cutting back and forth, shot, reverse shot during the conversations, but there are certain moments when um, there's nothing being said or nothing being done, and the camera is just sort of lingering on the person, and just really you're seeing their face, you're seeing their eyes, you're just kind of seeing them take in the world and seeing them sit with their emotions. Um, and... There are certain moments, too, where uh, if a conversation is happening and the conversation moves away from the person who is saying something, the camera doesn't necessarily move away with them. It just sits there. 
Um, I'm I'm thinking uh, specifically the first time that I really noticed it was um, after the opening scene after after uh, Phil and Sarah lose uh, their child, and uh, it cuts to you know one year later and they're and they're with some of their friends and they're kind of having not not necessarily a party but they're having dinner they're having drinks it seems like everyone's kind of at least having a good time or trying their best to pretend like they're having a good time, um, and Olivia Wilde. Um, gets up and she walks out of the room and so the camera is now focused on Phil on Luke Wilson and he mentions to his friend like you know she's still on lithium she probably shouldn't be drinking at all and so we expect then you know something subconscious in our brain says like well we're going to cut to his friend now to kind of see a reaction to that to that comment or we're going to cut to Olivia Wilde in the kitchen and kind of see like um uh, what she is doing unbeknownst to Phil but instead, the camera just stays on him and it stays on him for not a super long time, but just more. But the longer it goes on, the more you just kind of find yourself sort of being a little bit uncomfortable with the sense of like, can we cut away from him? Or I feel like, you know, the, the cinematic language of a movie is telling me that there should be a cut coming soon. And instead, we just see him react, go from the comment of she's on lithium still. She probably shouldn't be drinking to just him watching her leave the room to just his emotion changing where you just kind of see the veneer of kind of feeling jovial sort of drift a little bit and just this sense uh, and you just see on his face that really the reality is setting in or, or actually the reality hasn't left him that um there is still a lot of pain and you just see that change in his face because Murano has just sat there watching it unfold with him um there's even a moment too when uh, uh later on in the film when Phil has delivered um to John Leguizamo's character who is also a father who has been grieving because his 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 child uh, passed away. Phil shows up at the uh, at a diner to kind of meet with him with the the address of the man that hit and killed his uh, John Leguizamo's daughter in a car a few years ago. And it's not just for the most part it is kind of standard shot reverse shot except um, there are moments when you see or when you hear. Phil talking, and yet we're just instead looking at John Leguizamo's face, and his face is kind of, you see it too, transition from surprise, is like, what is this, to the recognition of like, oh, he got me the address of the guy that killed my daughter, to also then his vocals catch up with that, and he says, why would you do this? I don't need this. You know, you kind of see that thought developing on his face before he can vocalize it. Murano just sits with these characters and sits with their emotions and you see how things play out um, on their face before they can even say anything. Um, and, and the performances are, are uniformly excellent. Um, Luke Wilson is great. Olivia Wilde is great. John Leguizamo is great. Uh, Mara Weaver is very good in the small amount that she shows up in. Um, you specifically when it comes to the couple that's at the center of this film, you see them spiral in their own ways. Um, and she doesn't need to, you know, or, or Chris Rossi's script doesn't really need to have um, overly dramatic monologues or speeches with people kind of telling you, this is how I feel and this is what is happening to me right now. We are seeing it all play out on their faces in their interactions with each other in how they go about their their day-to-day -day work whether it is actually going uh, about work as Phil does or, or kind of um slipping into sort of a, an apathy like a, like um Sarah does um and, and and I mentioned um and and what is interesting about that to me is that uh 
Olivia Wilde does this this fantastic performance uh, in with relatively little words, and you kind of still get a sense of what she's feeling and what she's going through. And it's not just through her words, but it's also how she carries herself and her body language, and also you know the the makeup and how they do her up. You see these these bags kind of forming under her eyes as the film goes along, but she also kind of retracts into herself, and her outfit switches from you know kind of standard teacher fare to instead like hoodies and sweatpants, and she kind of does as much as she can to kind of, with her body language, to indicate that she wants to be left alone or that she just kind of wants to escape from everything that is going on around her. And she is grieving for the most part of this movie, except there is this these two sequences, and, and these, this is what I talked about when I said that the, you know, the cinematography doesn't really draw attention to itself, except for two moments. And the first moment is... Um, after she has done DMT with uh, Giovanni Giovanni Ribisi, and there it is again, Giovanni Ribisi's character on the roof, and it's the first time in the film where you really kind of get a, a, a clear feeling and sense of the sun. Now, there's plenty of scenes which take place outside in this movie, and you do get the sense of, like, well, not even get the sense, the sunlight is shining down on people, but this is the first one where we're made aware of the sun as an object, as a force in their lives, because um, Murano shoots a lot of the scene with just uh, sun flares and the sun streaming directly into the camera, kind of, um, with uh, Olivia Wilde's character and her head kind of moving in and out of, like, blocking that sun. And it, it has a kind of an ethereal sort of dreamlike quality and dream I say with the implication of something which is positive, which is something kind of like an escape, basically. And it's the first time in the movie that we really see her smile, and and not just smile, but mean it. Um, you know, in the in the, that opening one year later kind of like party scene, we see her um, laugh a little bit. But in this DMT scene, this is the first time where we really see her actually smiling and laughing. And on her face, you see that she means it. And she's having this experience where she just kind of believes that her son is fine and everything is going to be fine. And it's interesting to me because that scene in any other movie would, for me, or any other viewer, I think, would indicate that this is a moment where things are shifting or changing for her and where she has kind of come to this emotional realization that things are going to get better. And this is where we kind of see... You know, maybe maybe even like a midpoint in the film where think where you know fortunes kind of start changing a little bit for her, um, and yet with the context of this film, with everything that Murano has built between the story and the emotions at play, it struck me instead of a scene which is um, it's we don't see it as a beautiful moment, but she certainly sees it as a beautiful moment, and that's I think that's an interesting and important distinction too of, of what is the POV of the film and the characters. But then also, what what is or, or I'm sorry, what is the POV of the film and what is the POV of the characters? Because those those can be two different things. And in in my mind or how I interpret it was, she is seeing this moment, this DMT, uh, you know, opening her mind moment as a beautiful and an important and informative thing for her. And yet, it's not because as we as we find out later on, her her son is indeed dead they get proof of that and uh, you know i i don't i 
don't know a whole lot about DMT. I know that there is a, a documentary. It used to be on Netflix. I don't know if it still is. Um, DMT, the spirit molecule, and this is um, one of these drugs that people take to kind of uh, like you know open their minds and experience a, a, a transcendence and experience a life on a, in a different plane, basically. And so she believes that that thing is happening to her, and yet we as a viewer are kind of sitting back and seeing how she is spiraling, and just we we think to ourselves, no, this this is not happening. This is that this is actually an illusion. And now the second time that we see the cinematography draw attention to itself is somewhat connected, but it's at the very end of the film. Before I touch on that, I will say that um, we are now upon the the moment where my criticisms or, or where the film kind of lost me was the, the last 10 to 15 minutes. And now, if you want me to emphasize... Emphasize? That's not a word. If you want me to empathize with a character... Maybe don't have her commit adultery and kidnapping, <laughs> because that's basically, let's be honest, that's what she does in this movie. And now, for argument's sake, let's accept the premise that um, when she uh, sleeps with Adam's father, or when she, uh, that she is so kind of consumed and so lost in grief and has spiraled so far down that she's using anything she can to kind of fill an emotional hole. Especially because at that moment, you know, that late in the film, it kind of seems like she does have some type of connection or she wants some type of connection with Adam. So by fucking his father, or foster father, I should say, um, maybe she's trying to fill something. Or maybe she's trying to get an edge or, or, or something which will allow her to pursue this emotional fulfillment with Adam. Because, sure, after she fucks him, she does take the father's car keys to pick up Adam from school, and then, I guess, take him to Africa was the plan. Except it wasn't clear to me when I was watching it, was the, you know, the the car keys, was that always part of the plan? Was it, was fucking him just kind of a, a, a spur-of-the-moment emotional reaction, or was this her plan um, all along? But the problem with, even if we accept that this is her lost in, consumed by, just completely surrounded by grief, and she is trying to kind of fill some type of emotional hole, even if we accept that premise, the problem then comes back to this idea, uh, as, as, as Sean mentioned, the idea of um, motion over logic, and that's fine, but you can't keep them completely separate, because then, for me, then things just don't make sense. Because the the film never seems to really make it clear what she is seeking to gain from a relationship with Adam. And now some of you might say, well, it's very obvious. She lost her son, so she is trying to, to get one back. But that doesn't seem to really fly for me because she's, as far as I interpret it, she has maintained from the very beginning that her son was still alive up until we find out that he's not, which comes after the scene when she fucks Adam's father and kidnaps him. That was at least my interpretation because I know there was this one of the one sequence where they're meeting with a police detective and he's trying to show them pictures and she says something like, I don't even want to look at them. He's fine. And I interpreted that as she believes that he is alive, that, that, that there's there's no need to be pursuing this case of this body we found or, or this kind of, because that she had believed that her son, that everything was going to be okay and, and turn out okay with her son, and certainly the DMT sequence would lend credence to that idea. 
But then we find out that her son is dead. They find proof that he has been killed. And Phil makes a phone call to her. And then shortly after, almost immediately after that, that phone call scene, they're driving through the Meadowlands. This is the New Jersey Meadowlands, where, you know, the titular Meadowland comes from. They come across the elephant, and they pull over to the side of the road, and, they, and they, they see the elephant, and they have this sort of emotional breakthrough moment that seems to be, or the film would want us to believe, is sort of the fruition of a, of a journey, the final destination of a character arc. Except ending on that elephant would be the end of an arc for Adam, not for Sarah. Because we're not clear what Sarah wants, and specifically what Sarah wants from Adam. Because once again, even if we did believe that she wanted a surrogate son, the film would seem to indicate that she still believed that she had a son. So by making it unclear as to what Sarah wants and what Sarah wants from Adam, it's unclear as to why that's the moment to end the film. Unless my interpretation is correct. And this is my interpretation. Because I did say there were two sequences in this film in which the cinematography really draws attention to itself. The first one is the DMT sequence, when she's taking DMT and she's kind of having this transcendent experience. Which I think is an interesting sequence, not just because of the sun, but also one thing I forgot was that this is when the depth of field is the most shallow. In the sense of the camera is extremely close to her. And you see that there is a very small portion of her face which is in focus. And if she moves even just an inch or two, an inch away or towards the camera, everything goes out of focus. That's a very, very shallow depth of field there. And sure, a shallow depth of field was always an element of this film from the very beginning, but not that shallow. Not in the sense of just the slightest amount of movement means that everything is completely out of focus. To me, that sort of represented almost a, a splintering or kind of like a loss of reality because nothing is in focus anymore. Everything is blurry. Nothing is tangible. Nothing is immediate and intimate anymore. Every, like, everything is, is, is now unclear. The second sequence in which I think the cinematography draws the most attention to itself is this ending. And it's still not flashy, it's still not dramatic, it's still not kind of over the top, but it is bright and sunny. One of the few times in this film where there is bright sunshine. I mean, there is sunshine in this film, but this is one of the rare times that it seems and feels bright. There's the opening sequence when they're driving in the car and they still have their son in the back and everything is happy and wonderful. And then there's this end where they're driving through the Meadowland and you see the sun in the sky and it's a bright blue sky as far as I can remember, at least, perhaps I'm wrong. But there's this feeling of brightness and of happiness. And you see her approach the elephant, and you see her reach her hand out and touch it, and you see her smile. And just like the DMT sequence, it's the first time that she really smiles and means it. And she smiles and the camera cuts. But... What are the th- these two things, or, or what are the things that these two sequences have in common? The DMT sequence and the end sequence. We have her smiling and meaning it, and we have attention drawn to the sun and to the light. Now, 
if the DMT sequence is indicating that she is breaking from reality or that things are forever unclear now and uncertain, then I have to believe that because of the, the correlations or, or, or at least the visual similarities lead to a visual or an emotional correlation in the sense of the film ends on that shot and that sequence because we are to believe that she has permanently separated now and that there is no more returning to real happiness and real sanity for her. That's how I interpreted it. And that's really fucking bleak. (laughs) Now you can disagree with my interpretation of that, and that's fine. It's totally fine. Once again, I, as I've said and reiterated on this podcast time and time again, subjective or, or, or viewing a film is super subjective and if you liked or disliked something that's fine if you saw something that was there whether it was intended to be there or not that's totally fine whatever helps you enjoy or make sense of the viewing experience now i interpreted and i believe that the ending indicates that there is no hope that she has broken from reality for three reasons. One, the thing that I just indicated, which is the sense of the similarities between these two sequences in the film, the DMT sequence and the end sequence. Two, the, the idea of when you're writing a screenplay or making a movie, there are one of two places it can end, either at the logical conclusion of a journey or at the point where if you were to continue the story, we would just see that it's a loop where the continuation of the story would show that we are just going to go through the same story again. And I believe it's the latter. Not that this is a natural ending point for this story, but because if we continued with it, we would just be repeating it. They say the definition of madness is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. But also, number three, the reason that I believe in this interpretation is because I I don't think there's anything else that's clear enough to indicate why this is a rational point for Sarah's emotional journey to end or why this is a resolution and I've been criticized before by people for wanting a resolution or wanting things to wrap up neatly and it's not as though I necessarily want things to wrap up neatly as much as I don't see how this is a logical place to wrap things up so in order to make sense of it part of that is you know by my interpretation of this ending that is a logical place to wrap things up. And if that's true, that's really fucking bleak. And I would, and I completely would understand uh, why my fi- my fiance uh, didn't want to be a part of it. But like I said, for the most part, really liked Meadowland, really liked a lot of stuff that Murano brought to this. Um, I know that uh, a director always has some type of input on what the script says, where it goes. Um, but I think that the flaws in this movie do come down to a script level. Because as a character-driven film, as an emotional film, Murano does such phenomenal work as a director to kind of make you feel that, to get you out of, to, or, or to get you into this world and to just have you feel what they are feeling. Um, if you want to watch this movie again, watch it for the first time. It's uh, free to stream if you go to Tubi, T-U-B-I, or have a uh, subscription to Sundance Now. 
And through that Sundance Now subscription, you can also watch it through Amazon. But if you do not subscribe to that or you have never gone to Tubi before, which once again, I've mentioned this on the show before, Tubi is a free video streaming service, which is supported by ads. So you can watch the movie for free, but it has to stop every now and again for a commercial. You can also rent or buy the film on Amazon, on YouTube, on Redbox, Google Play, the Microsoft Store, Apple, and a thing called FlixFling, um, which I had never heard of before until right now. But So that's Metaland, um, a flawed but I think really strong directorial uh, debut from Reed Morano, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, where we go next with a film that she did not deep or that she did not direct but did DP instead. So. As is always the case, super easy to get in touch with me or to catch up with what's been going on with the show. You can email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com, tweet at me at nolanfixesteeth, catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at battleshippretension.com or on idomoviesbadly.podbean.com as well. Um, that does it for this episode. Hopefully some of my rambling made sense to you and... Uh, Hopefully the film didn't come across as bleak to you as it did to me. And if that's the case, I certainly want to hear from you. But uh, be sure to tune in next week where I will be covering uh, the film that she DP'd but did not direct, The Skeleton Twins, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 